Hey, folks, just a technical note. We had a really wonky connection for parts of this week's show, particularly the interview with Doug Berkey. So it may not be as resonant or well-modulated as you're accustomed to, but it's all really good content. It reminded me of all the veterans that I knew and was so fortunate to know growing up and really just reminds us all that we don't have these guys with us anymore and what avoid that leaves because what they went through is such a seminal experience and was so profound in, in shaping that they were very unique individuals and, and we we're so lucky to have them in this country for so long and to learn from you know their example and all just incredible individuals from the defense and aerospace report this is the air power podcast powered by ge aerospace i'm jj gertler and i'm vago maradian this week something a little different We've spent the last few episodes talking about the future of air power. In this episode, we look at the past, at least how a new generation of Hollywood filmmakers sees it. The Apple TV series Masters of the Air depicts bomber combat in the Second World War. Is it realistic? And what can the public learn about air power from it, for better or worse? We'll ask aviation historian and warbird pilot Doug Berkey. And Tom Carrico of the Center for Strategic and International Studies brings us up to date on the air and missile defense as well as air war in Ukraine. And this week's headlines in air power. And it's all powered by GE. From America's first jet engine to the revolutionary three-stream adaptive cycle engine, GE Aerospace has been delivering firsts for military propulsion for more than 100 years. Learn about the latest innovation at geaerospace.com slash XA100. And the Defense and Aerospace Report and its family of publications is brought to you by HII, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems, GE Aerospace, Bell, Leonardo DRS, and American Rheinmetall. JJ, what's in the news this week on All Wings Considered? Vago, it's time to play the St. Louis Blues. USNI News says that the U.S. Navy contract to purchase the last lot of 20 FA-18 Super Hornets may be in trouble. The 20 aircraft were added by Congress after the Navy stopped requesting F-18s, but Boeing and the Navy can't agree on how much those planes are actually worth and whether the amount Congress appropriated will cover them. Those discussions are ongoing. In a similar story, Boeing and the Air Force are at loggerheads over the price for the E-7, successor to the E-3 Sentry. The first Ukrainian F-16 pilots to train in the U.S. will complete that training as soon as May. We'll have more on that in the air war in Ukraine with Dr. Tom Carrico in just a moment. And at the Singapore Air Show, China's Z-10ME armed attack helicopter made its debut. Think of an Apache-class helicopter with a built-in 23-millimeter gun. Pakistan looks like the first export customer. Vago? First of all, kudos to you, the St. Louis Blues. Very, very good, if somewhat not funny, if you're somebody in St. Louis. But in all fairness, the F-18 has been on borrowed time for some time. And frankly, the jet was always a little bit of a stopgap for many, as we would hopefully transition to a more advanced, more long-range and increasingly unmanned naval air force. What's the sense of what comes next, right? I mean, it pretty much is up to either NGAD or FAXX to fill the void, right? When does the F-18 fully go out of production, JJ, at this rate? We've got about two more years if those 20 aircraft are agreed to and go ahead. But right now, we don't know when that dilemma is going to be resolved 
or whether it depends in any part on what Congress winds up doing with the FY24 or soon maybe the FY25 budgets. So, JJ, walk us through, right, what's happening right now in St. Louis, and it really does hang on whether or not Boeing ends up winning NGAD or the Next Generation Air Dominance or or the Navy's FAXX. If those aircraft do wind up being built in St. Louis, right now that factory, as they wind up or wind down, as the case may be, Super Hornet production is building the F-15EX, but pretty soon you're going to see the T-7 trainer coming off in significant numbers, up to 351 of those aircraft coming through that factory. So it's not as immediately dire for them to be winning either. I mean, obviously they want to win it, right? But NGAD and FAXX would just be an addition, assuming the Air Force presses ahead with buying F-15s, which it appears uh, to be doing. The Air Force is getting some number of those. That, That number has varied between the 70s and 144 over time. But they're also hoping for some significant international sales. They can keep their fingers crossed on that. And JJ, you know, put your analyst hat on here for a minute. What do you attribute Boeing's inability to strike contracts on F-18s and on E-7s? Both of these are running lines. It should easily result in an executable contract. Is, is this a case of not knowing the price? Or is this a case of a Boeing that's got its back up against the wall, pushing maybe a little harder than it should on every possible nickel from these contracts? It does seem odd, given how long that aircraft has been in production, unless Boeing is trying to make up a lot of money on the last 20, understanding that they're the final ones likely to come through the line. But the cost of producing it are well known. What the Navy is willing to pay for it are well known. So it's a little puzzling why there would be such a debate unless it's just that Congress underpriced those aircraft when it made its appropriation for them. With regard to the E-7, it seems to be a difference in expectations for the aircraft. The idea with the E-7 was that they were already in production for foreign countries, so the U.S. could easily buy a few more. But it turns out that the U.S. requirements are significantly different from those aircraft being built for foreign countries. And it's that part of the price that has to get renegotiated between the Air Force and Boeing. And let me ask you one last question. Everybody has a tendency of sometimes poo-pooing whatever it is the Chinese come out with. Although, if you look at it, they are managing to sell their products to a number of countries that may not necessarily be in Europe or in Asia. Uh, Certainly in Africa and Pakistan always has been a pretty reliable customer. Do you think that there is a bigger market for the Z10 ME than might meet the eye, right, that goes beyond just Pakistan, for example? There are lots of countries that are interested in a capability without spending a lot of money. And some of them care where that capability comes from. Some of them really don't. Yes, there's a decent market for an attack helicopter of this class. At the same time, we see the U.S. starting to get away from the whole idea of an attack helicopter, as you can see in part in the cancellation of the FARA program. So whether attack helicopters move forward is a separate question. But those countries that want to have them do have another viable alternative on the table now. Okay, JJ, how about we get on to air and missile defenses in Ukraine? That sounds like an excellent idea. I know a guy. And joining us now, as he does more or less every month to update us on air and missile defense, is Dr. Tom Carrico, director of the Air and Missile Defense Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Tom, welcome back. Hey, great to be back. Appreciate it. Let's start with something that's in the headlines. Russia claims to have adapted its Kinzhal hypersonic missile to be more effective specifically in Ukraine. 
and also reportedly deployed its Zircon missile, which is also hypersonic, to that theater. I'm not sure it's clear there's reason to believe the speed of these missiles has made a tactical difference. Do they pose any reason to change the weapons other countries are trying to send Ukraine? No, that's a good question. I appreciate your uh, kind of distinguishing the characteristics of these several things, because the quote-unquote hypersonic thing is, as you note, fundamentally a speed and the aerodynamic and thermal properties thereunto. But you list two things. One, the Kinzel, which is essentially an air-launched ballistic missile, uh, as well as the Zircon, which is a completely different thing, a really an advanced cruise missile, fundamentally. And as you note, there was a report this past a week or so, the remnants of a what was believed to be a Zircon were found there, which was ostensibly the first time it was used in combat. What does this mean? What's the, what's the significance of this? I see this as fundamentally a testing ground for these various systems. First of all, Ukraine is an intelligence bonanza for us in terms of what the Russians have and how it's performing, as well as how our systems are performing against it. Uh, but it's also, of course, an intelligence opportunity or an information gathering opportunity on the part of Russia as they test stuff out. And so it doesn't surprise me that you know they might use uh, something here and there to see how it does and so forth. Speaking of Russian capabilities, any time the Russians can leak a nuclear capability with which they can rattle a saber, they do. There was a briefing, you know, a lot of kerfuffle on the Hill last week about a Russian capability, and it was revealed that the Russians have not fielded a nuclear-tipped anti-satellite weapon in space, but clearly it would be a violation of all manner of agreements. This is normally the purview of Laura Winter, the host of the Downlink podcast. But you are one of the people, and your former colleague, Todd Harrison, would track this kind of capability in depth. Talk to us a little bit about the capability. What does it mean? And what does it mean for the application of air power, right? Putting aside whatever its effects are in the space domain, sure. it has terrestrial effects. No, absolutely. Look, what happens in space, space is a warfighting domain now, but what happens in space matters to us below fundamentally because, you know, for instance, land is the domain on which most human beings spend most of the time. But it absolutely is applicable and is relevant. And I think that's why you saw somebody like Mike Turner do something fairly unprecedented about this. Look, what's been happening over the past several years, everybody knows the kind of gold rush to low Earth orbit in terms of putting lots and lots of stuff up there for both military and commercial applications. As it happens in December, in a report that Masao Dahlgren uh, and the Missile Defense Project at CSIS put out on space sensors for air and missile defense, we explicitly warned against exactly this type of thing, about putting all of our eggs in the low Earth orbit basket, lest a nuclear pumping event like this particular kind of uh, capability could do, take all that out at a stroke, or at least take out a lot of it. So I would encourage folks to take a look at our report called Getting on Track from December, where we spend several pages talking about how nuclear events in low Earth orbit could disproportionately undo the kind of missile tracking or air tracking uh, satellites and capabilities that we're investing in. You know, there's noise out there about should the U.S. Air Force kind of divest itself of high altitude ISR sensors or should it go all into space? And I think that this news from the past week or so cautions against putting, again, all of our eggs in the LEO right. basket because you want diversity, you want resilience against even these kinds of things, which, by the way, is a violation of explicitly the 1967 Outer Space Treaty. Not sure about others, but certainly the 67 Treaty. 
JJ and I were in Denver last week where a lot of senior officials, whether it was the secretary or the chief, and certainly the chief of space operations, General Salty Saltzman, were talking about the importance of resilience, right? So all of the answers they gave us indicated that this and a number of other possible threats were things that are being considered. And folks have talked about an electromagnetic pulse in space and what does it do to a lot of unhardened satellites that many of us have come to rely on assuming, obviously, that we would not be doing nuclear exchanges in space. Well, putting EMP aside, simply the old-fashioned effects of a nuclear weapon uh, in low Earth orbit and radiation and nuclear pumping of the ballon belts uh, would be a bad day for all of our counter-air assets that are going up there. Indeed, they would. Let me shift gears back to the air and missile defense arena. You and I were in New York at the Bank of America conference that we partner with Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein on, and we heard from Ukrainian official in that point, he was telling us, hey, look, these barrages keep coming in, even though everybody's attention has shifted to the Middle East. The U.S. is not getting its act together in terms of replenishing Ukraine's defenses, and the Europeans are trying to do this. Are the Ukrainians at this point Tom, getting what they need to be able to defend themselves because those power grids are not going to defend themselves and the Russians really are cranking up the attacks to try to do as much damage as they can. What's your sense? Are they getting what they need? A couple of things. First of all, I want to state at the outset that I am definitely attentive and sympathetic to the concerns about capacity. It scares the bejesus out of me to hear reports, as we heard today, that something approaching 100 SM I'm thinking mainly SM2s might have been expended in the Red Sea over you know how many weeks. That's a problem. That is a big problem. And in a similar way, the Patriot is not a belt-fed round, and this is a scarce uh, and limited asset. In terms of what you say about our, quote-unquote, not getting our act together, of course, you can thank the likes of uh, Senator J.D. Vance, Senator Josh Hawley, and other senior statesmen for playing a kind of game here. I'm hopeful that the news about both the Russian nuke in space threat and also the murder of Navalny in Russia could help uh, harden the heart of Pharaoh here and change the temperature on Capitol Hill with respect to the Ukraine supplemental and others. There's not enough to go around. That is certainly true. We need more capacity. I think that's why you saw Japan helping out uh, with some old rounds and shifting to us to kind of replenish our stocks. Capacity is a problem, but as I always kind of talk about, as you know, Vago, air defense won't win the war, but its absence could lose one uh, for you rather quickly. And that's the salience of it here. Well, Tom, as the Ukrainian weapons inventory draws down, what does the road to Winchester look like? Does Ukraine focus its dwindling weapons on particular areas or corridors, or do they try and peanut butter spread them across the country and defend everything just less effectively? Do we have an idea what happens when they go and find the larger bear? Well, of course, it's it's not a good idea to say where your air defenses are and where they aren't, but I would point you to statements by folks by the like of uh, Zelensky uh, himself who have said, look, we, we have had to pull some of these things back already to defend Kiev and other things. Peanut butter spreading is not really a very good idea because when you peanut butter spread, it's super thin everywhere and basically not useful. And so I think there's, first of all, been some amazing innovations uh, in Ukraine, which have just become kind of public in terms of their nationwide acoustic net for some of the Shahids and cruise missile and other aerial threats. Uh, that's all fantastic innovation to kind of get after this and to be able to contend with a lot of those threats 
with gun-based weapons. Gun-based along with indications and warning about where something is and where it's heading. You don't always need a, a fancy missile to take it out. You can use a simpler and, and cheaper and more plentiful means. But it is a problem. And so I, I think that you could well anticipate a kind of a pullback, a continued pullback perhaps. And you frankly are seeing that in the headlines uh, just this week. Let me uh, ask you one last question, Tom, and it's about the uh, F-16s. A lot of farsighted folks were talking about the importance of providing this capability to the Ukrainians very early on. I know Dave Deptula joined us literally at the very beginning and saying, hey, we got to get this started to be able to get this capability in their hands. It finally was approved. The first 12 Ukrainian F-16 pilots are undergoing U.S. training. There are others that are being trained in Europe. But some Ukrainian officials have said, hey, we asked for this capability a long time ago. It may be somewhat less relevant by the time we field it. From your standpoint, do these aircraft stand a chance against Russian sophisticated air and missile defenses that have been demonstrated in theater? Or do you think that this is a capability that can still deliver some hurt to the Russians, especially for their ability to be able to deliver weapons? I know the Germans are considering uh, adding the Taurus cruise missile, which is a terrific weapon, to the scalps and storm shadows that France and the United Kingdom have supplied to the Ukrainians and used to terrific effect. What's your sense about the utility of these aircraft once they get in theater, given the kind of capability the Russians can muster? I have to believe to answer your, your direct question uh, that they can still uh, provide a lot of hurt. You know, the Russian air defenses are finite and limited, too. They are also, uh, you know, limited by the horizon. And so there's a whole lot of things you can do in terms of an F-16 and everything else. And don't let the best be the enemy of the good. I caution about the kind of weird and perverse pattern whereby we say, well, we don't want to do that. And then we end up doing it six months later when it would have been so much useful uh, six months prior. That applies to the F-16s. It applies to the right. attack homes. And likewise, Vago, just this week, there was another news story in, on, the, on the heels of the news reports about, you know, the Ukrainians kind of falling back and running out of ammo. Now there's a news story. Well, the Biden administration is considering longer range attack homes. Well, why didn't you think about that before? So whether it be F-16s, ATACMs, and as you point out correctly, the Taurus, uh, it would be awesome if the Taurus gets over there uh, with all deliberate haste to allow them to take out bridges and depots and whatever else to keep the Russians on their heels as opposed to vice versa. Look, as far as I'm concerned, the Russians are the aggressor. They're the ones who started this. We can't talk ourselves out of delivering capability for fear. It'll be escalatory. You know, just as everybody was heading to Munich for the security conference and before it started, they killed Navalny. They've killed a Russian defector pilot who defected with a Russian helicopter in Spain by shooting him and then running him over. Right. I mean, so I, I think self-deterrence really doesn't work. Anyway, over to you, JJ. Tom, uh, as a fellow CSIS, at least alumnus in my case, one of our number and a person who had a tremendous influence on U.S. strategic thought for a lot of years recently left our company. And I understand that you were particularly moved by his example. You're referring, of course, JJ, to Tony Cordesman, who, of course, was a giant. I was just delighted to be able to work with him for the past you know, eight or so years this is a guy who, who his first job in defense was with Robert McNamara back in the day. And he's basically been a fixture and in institution ever since. And everybody in town, military, across the board, has known and respected and has listened to Tony Cordesman's cold, but also you know fundamentally patriotic and just decent uh, analysis of all these things. So uh, we've been blessed to have him in our midst. 
it's our loss that he is uh, that he has gone on. I cannot tell you uh, the number of times he came by my desk to talk about the CEP, the circular error probable of Iranian missiles. I never had an answer good enough for him. And likewise, I've never met a drier wit in all of Washington, D.C. than Tony Korsman. So uh, thank you for calling it out, J.J., and uh, we're sorry to see him, see him gone. Very much so. Tony also was for many years the strategic thought behind Senator John McCain and his influence on defense and foreign policy, among many other contributions. Indeed. I uh, also want to point out that I was a young reporter in 1992 when I got started. I admired Tony Cordesman and would talk to him every day. And I can't tell you what an incredible mentor he was, how much I learned from him and continued to learn from him uh, with each exchange. So I'm I'm honored to have known him and to have worked with him uh, a little bit and gotten even to travel with him a little bit, actually, to Jordan once. So just an incredible giant of American strategic thought, and he will be sorely missed. Well said. Dr. Tom Carrico, Director of the Air and Missile Defense Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Good of you to join us again on the Air Power Podcast. Well, thank you, JJ. Thank you, Vago. And again, none of this matters if you're dead, and that's why you need air defense. And if you like the Air Power Podcast, don't miss our other weekly podcasts on the award-winning Defense and Aerospace Report Network. Cavus Ships, hosted by Chris Cavus and Chris Cervello, and sponsored by HII and GE Marine, a GE aerospace company. They clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space. And our technology report, where we dive deep into the ones and zeros of cyber, networks, chips, and more. It's hosted by Vago Maradian. And joining us now is a good friend, Doug Berkey, the executive director of the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies. He is not only a first-rate aviation historian and tireless champion of air power, but he's also an experienced warbird pilot, supporter, and enthusiast, and aviation collector. Anybody who's been near any office Doug has occupied or space he's occupied ends up utterly stunned by the museum quality of the aviation memorabilia that he's got. Doug, welcome to the program. Hey, you're too kind. Always a pleasure to talk to you. An absolute pleasure. And you're, as I mentioned, right, you're not just somebody who's a champion of air power, but you're an aviation historian of the first order with really, I mean, I would say a priceless collection of artifacts that you continue to add to in very admirable ways. You know, JJ was joking that you could actually build most of the 8th Air Force just from your collection. When you and I talked about this some time ago, when many of us heard that Masters of the Air, America's bomber boys who fought the air war against Nazi Germany, was being turned into uh, a series. We got very excited, right? I mean, naval aviation has the Top Gun franchise, and you know, submariners have the Hunt for Red October, and the surface guys have Battleship. Army's got Band of Brothers. The Air Force, I guess, had Memphis Bell, but it's been a while. You've been critical of the series, Doug, right? In Air and Space Forces magazine, you wrote your dissection and analysis of it. What did you hope Masters of the Air would accomplish? And how does it stack up against those hopes? Yeah, I would say fundamentally, it's a crucial, crucial story to tell because you cannot understand modern warfare and certainly modern air operations without understanding strategic attack. And the combined bomber offensive in World War II is the absolute... Part of that. I mean, you have folks coming out of World War One, like 
Spots and Arnold and obviously Mitchell's experience and all. And they had a fundamental moral conviction that they looked down at those bloody trench lines and they said, there's got to be a better way. And that's really what they spent the 20s and 30s doing was coming up with the doctrine, the technology, the operating concepts to do deep strategic attack to try to take out the enemy's ability to sustain combat operations. And it's core to what we do today. People just take it for granted. And, you know, I'm privileged to work with General Deptula where we talk about it frequently. I mean, what he did in Desert Storm was manifesting those same concepts and strategies, but the technology finally caught up with precision strike and stealth and all of that. But really what he was harnessing comes back to what these guys are trying to do in the CBO. And, you know, he tells a story where he actually read uh, Haywood Hansel's book, The Airplane That Defeated Hitler, right before Desert Storm just happened to. And he was inspired by those ideas as he put together the air campaign. And it's just amazing, that lineage. And so I think that's why it's so important to keep this story relevant and alive, not to mention the tremendous personal sacrifice of these airmen. I mean, they kept strapping into those aircraft, knowing that the odds were so stacked against them. And so to honor that, especially as we see that generation almost gone, it is important to introduce new generations to their service and their dedication to duty. And it is it is scary how fast those, those veterans are almost all gone now and, and very sad. So I was hoping that there was going to be a balanced discussion of both the tactical um, excellence and what we saw kind of from a second lieutenant's uh, viewpoint, as well as a strategic narrative of this is what was going on. This is why it was going on. There's sort of the broader factors. They certainly got the first element. You certainly got war from a younger person's viewpoint in the aircraft. But the broader reason as to the why in the surrounding context, I think, is pretty lacking. And that's where I would really critique the movie. It's very hard to discuss the strategic bombing without discussing the strategic part. Well, Doug, as you mentioned, the Second World War defines a tremendous amount of the way we think about air power. Even today, because of movies, because of television shows back in the day, that's our image, or at least the public's image, of a lot of what strategic bombardment looks like. What do we have to unlearn from those tactics and from that war in order to become more relevant to the modern day fight, or does it really all still apply? I think it's the intent of what they're trying to do still holds true. They wanted to go forward and do precision strike against targets whose destruction would yield the greatest impact against an adversary. They lacked the, the technical means to really do that, and so they had to go to more mass methods to really bludgeon the enemy forces. But there are crucial lessons that are coming to fold today that they struggled with that we need more awareness of. For example, numbers. We spent all of 1942, 1943, trying to stay alive. And they were not able to project decisive power because their force structure, whether it be the aircraft or the personnel, it was so small that they could never really put enough folks into the fold without risking collapsing the force. And it took two years for industry and the training pipeline to catch up. And that's why when you see kind of the winter of 43 into January and February 44, that's when all of a sudden it clicks and you're able to do these decisive strikes with massive overwhelming power and you're able to backfill your losses and just keep up this unrelenting juggernaut of strike. And that's really where it becomes 
so effective. And it, it's kind of sad because that's where Ira Aker was relieved of command of the 8th Air Force, right when this thing that he had, you know, blood, sweat, and tears building and all that finally comes to the fold. And, and then he's sent down to 15th Air Force. And I think that's, you know, what Carl Spots and then Jimmy Doolittle put into use is just incredible. But it took time to get there. Today, we live in a world where our Air Force is dramatically undersized. I mean, 20 B-2s, 185 F-22s, you know, the F-35 build rate is way below what we ever planned. The fourth gen iron is literally just aging out before we can replace it. Things like J-Stars, again, aging out before the, the new solutions online. So we are so small. We are so old and fragile. And yet everything is so much more complex and we're no longer an industrialized nation. So it took two years to spin up in World War II. I don't think we have the ability to really surge and get to the levels we need for decisive power projection against a peer competitor. You know, it, it would take a decade probably to get up there. And, and Ukraine's showing that. I mean, we're having trouble producing 155 rounds and things like that. Pretty simple stuff. You try an F-35, a B-21, or, you know, another service, a submarine for the Navy. That's why we've really got to stick to just sustained builds to try to get back to where we need to from a capacity standpoint. This technology is phenomenal, so important, but you need the numbers too, and we're out of balance with that. So those are lessons, I think, that really are important for people to take away from this history. I would also point out, right, I mean, in that period is also when the P-51 Mustang was coming in and yep. could actually escort those aircraft all the way in as opposed to P-47s and P-38s that couldn't get nearly as far, leaving the bombers by themselves to brave both flak uh, as well as German air power. You've spent an enormous amount of time in the sky in World War II uh, aircraft, uh, and the biggest complaint about computer-generated imagery is that, however good it is, it's still fake. In this case, the filmmakers went to great lengths to try to get it right. They reproduced B-17s, they put them on masks, they were shaking them around, they were punching holes in them and trying to find novel ways for the actors to respond realistically. How does this show capture what it was like to fly in those planes and to conduct these missions that were eight, nine hours long? I mean, I think it was a lot of boredom. It was freezing cold. And then it was just sheer unmitigated terror, not just for minutes, but for hours as they just kept getting attacked on their way to their targets and back. What did the movie visually get right? And where do you think it fell short? On the positive side of the ledger, the micro details were excellent. If you look at how the uniforms and the flight gear evolved from the beginning of the war up through the end, they were nailing it. I mean, if it's subtle, but the oxygen masks were changing. You know, they start with an A-10, they end up with an A-14. You know, the goggles are changing. They're going from A-2 and B-3 jackets to the fabric ones, like B-12s and stuff like that. And so they nailed that part. The interior sets of the aircraft were very good. There were some, some very skilled folks that they brought online to, to help with that. In fact, I got a call one day when they began this thing, and, and one of those guys reached out to me and said, we need some B-17 landing gear and some wheels and tires. Can you help us out? And so made some calls, and that's what you see in the movie. So I applaud that. The full-scale B-17s, given that their props were, were impressive, what is puzzling is that they didn't actually use some of the flyers. And you know, you've got Sally B, which is a B-17 based in the UK. There are several B-17s in the US that could be brought over like they did for the 1990 Memphis Bell film. They didn't even call these folks. And so there was never even the exploratory phase of that. And I think it did fall short there because with CGI, 
you're relying on animators and what they think it looks like. And they normally don't understand how these things move, the kind of energy and, and all that. So if you watch the formations of the aircraft, they're all rigid. You know, if one airplane moves up, they all move up. No, that's not how this works. They, they bounce around and all that. If you look at the beginning of the film and they try to show this difficult crosswind landing, it, you know, it looks cartoonish. I mean, it's, it's just not how the aircraft behaves. Um, you watch takeoff scenes and these B-17s must have radio on them because they're climbing out so fast. And that is not how a fully laden B-17 would climb out. So, you know, I'm fortunate. I've spent a good portion of my life around flying B-17s and probably have over 100 hours flying in them and B-24s as well. So I'm very fortunate in that. But with that experience and and watching a portrayal on film, I'll just be honest, guys, it was a little degrading at times. It was like, ugh, it's just not right. The sounds and all that, I know they did live recordings off of commemorative Air Force's uh, B-17 Sentinel Journey, but however it replicated on screen, sounds weren't dialed in. It just, it, it was a little hollow. And I was a little saddened by that because honestly, the aircraft are as much characters as the people. And anybody that's been around a combat aircraft knows that. I mean, that airplane's your buddy. It's going to get you there and back, hopefully. And so it left those feeling a bit more like shells instead of real airplanes. Um, and you had made a, an observation, right? That's why Tom Cruise didn't want CGI in Top yeah. Gun Maverick. And you said Devotion actually did a better job by actually using F4U Corsairs and other live uh, period correct aircraft to get that texture right, the movement right, right? Exactly. They, they replicated real airplanes instead of replicated CGI airplanes. Yeah, and I think you nailed that. I think Devotion is probably where they should go in the future for the industry where you start with the core. And of course, there are only so many flying orbits around that you're going to get. You fly those, but then you can replicate them to create the sense of mass and all that. And then the animators actually have a real thing that they can index against for, okay, let's make it look like that and just force multiply it. Great, you get the effect. Given the holes you found, some of which may even be visible to people much less well-versed in that era's aircraft and operations, what films would you recommend the public see to get a better taste of what World War II was really like? On the air side, Memphis Bell, honestly, from the 90s, is really good in many senses. It's well-known, but obviously 12 Akai, Command Decision, those from a leadership perspective, this notion of what is the strategic story of strategic bombing, let's really nail it. And I think it's a very difficult story to, to tell. You know, Hollywood has, has continually struggled with it, but I think those did a good job. The one thing I'll tell you about this movie, though, the veterans themselves could look at this and justice was done. I think they would be okay with their portrayal. I don't think these guys were cast in, in ways that could be viewed negatively or anything like that. And, and I was very happy they did not take a revisionist tone on how these guys looked at the war. I mean, it was very much, look, the Nazis are bad. This is very difficult that we have to do this to these, these areas of Europe. But we're against pure evil. And when you're against that kind of foe, you've got to give it everything you have to bring the conflict to a conclusion as rapidly as possible. And that comes down to decisive power projection. And didn't shy away from that. And so I was really happy about that. And it was interesting. You know, I watched the whole series, and, and the piece that really got me was at the end, the last episode, they show the actors, and then they show the real person they're portraying, both what they looked like in the war, and then when they're older, and they're all gone now that were portrayed in the film. And boy, guys, that got me. I, I choked up big time because it reminded me 
of all the veterans that I knew and was so fortunate to know growing up and really just reminds us all that we don't have these guys with us anymore and what avoid that leaves because what they went through is such a seminal experience and was so profound in, in shaping that they were very unique individuals and, and we were so lucky to have them in this country for so long and to learn from you know their example at all. Just incredible individuals. They have slipped the surly bonds of earth. Doug yep. Berkey, Executive Director of the Mitchell Institute and our man on the aisle and on the flight deck. Thanks so much for joining us again on the Air Power Podcast. Thanks, guys. It's a pleasure. And before we go, guys, I just want to point out, you know, I've been a little critical here, but on the other hand, if this makes the American public more aware and appreciative of this history and these individuals and their service and sacrifice, I really do commend production team and, and the cast and everybody that made it possible. And I know a ton of effort went into this. And so I'm very, very appreciative of that at the end of the day. And let's hope it does get another generation hooked to go learn more and be cognizant of all that went before us. Amen, Doug. And I commend the audience to check out Don Miller's terrific book. It's it's really a, a classic of air power. And I'm glad that at least they didn't do it in one episode, but they did it as a series to try to give people that sense of scope. Thousand bomber raids. I mean, imagine that. That's more than the combined combat air power of almost the entire Western Alliance, isn't it, Doug? No, it's amazing. And, and that does get across in the film. And so props to him for that. Thanks so much for joining us on the Air Power Podcast. And if you liked what you heard, hey, tell a friend, unless you think it would give them a competitive advantage. Thanks also to GE Aerospace for powering the entire flight. We'll be back next week. 